go to Psalm 4, and we're going through these sacred songs. And uh, what I'm trying to do with the Lord's help is just to walk through each one of these psalms, uh, some tremendous substance. Uh, how many of you have found in your life uh, when difficulties come, when you're facing hardships, how many of you have found solace in the Psalms? It's been a great place. I'll tell you, the, the book of Psalms is tremendous. Uh, some of the things that you'll find tonight, yet another one of those uh, in Psalm 4. It's just eight verses, and so let's look at this tonight. The Bible says, Hear me when I call, O God of my righteousness. Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. O ye sons of men, how long will ye turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing? Selah. But know that the Lord hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with my, uh, your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. Offer the sacrifices of righteousness and put your trust in the Lord. There be many that say, who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increased. I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me dwell in safety. What a great psalm, and I was reading through this, and the thought came to me about this psalm, let your talk talk. Uh, people have a lot to say in life, but listen, I'll tell you what, I don't think we can ever say too much about the Lord. I don't think we can ever talk too much about what God has done for us, how good God has been to us. And David was thinking about his life. Remember a couple weeks ago, we talked about Psalm 3, and we went into a study of Psalm 3, and it was about the, 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 the rebellious attitude of David's son, Absalom. Psalm 4 ties into Psalm 3. Now, when you come to this psalm, you find that David, of course, has been driven out from his inheritance by Absalom, his son. But David knew, and God promised him, reminded of him back in Psalm 3, that his true inheritance, listen now, was spiritual, not material. God, God reminded David, look, we don't live for the things on this earth. We, we, we live for what is eternal. Uh, what God has for us. And so David understood, and I hope you do tonight, that our true inheritance is not in this world, it's in the Lord. That's where David's inheritance was. And no one, even his own son Absalom, could drive him away from that. David's inheritance, the Bible talks about that we are joint heirs with Jesus. Everything that is the Lord's is ours. Uh, we became sons of God and the children of God. So the circumstances that surround Psalm 4 are a little bit more calm than you find in Psalm 3, because Psalm 3, David had just fled for his life. Uh, his heart was pounding because Absalom and those that had, had, had given their allegiance to Absalom and, and had uh, rose up against David, they were after David. 
But now it's been a time period, and David has had an opportunity to maybe uh, spend a few uh, hours just thinking about uh, the goodness of God in his life. And Absalom, in his attempt, really had failed. He had the opportunity because he had the advantage. Uh, yet David had an opportunity, we talked about last time in Psalm 3, to recruit some of those uh, men to have with him during his time of need. But the one thing that I see here is that the future and what David was looking at and the future that you and I look at in our lives is that all of our future still could be something filled with perils. Uh, there's always going to be something that uh, we might deal with in our lives, but I could tell you this, that if you've had something in the past, just like David had, that chances are things are better now than they were back then. And that's what David is thinking about as he begins to pen the words of this psalm. And I want you to look at five things that David was reminded of that I think God wants us to keep at the forefronts of our lives too. Notice, first of all, he talks of salvation. He talks of salvation. David's salvation, now this isn't uh, to be saved by the grace of God. This isn't to be saved from our sins. David's talking here about being saved from adverse circumstances. Uh, God is one that delivers us not only from our sins, but God also is the one that saves us and he's an ever-present help in time of need. And so I notice it here that as you look what it says in verse number one, David talks of a personal salvation. David needed deliverance in his life from the adversary. Uh, you and I, every day, look, the wicked one never rests. Uh, everywhere you turn, if it's not the devil, it's someone else that is trying to uh, persecute you in some way because you are a child of God. And David talks about this in verse number one. Look at what he says. Hear me when I call, O God, of my righteousness, Thou hast enlarged me when I was in distress. Have mercy upon me and hear my prayer. And do you hear the personal salvation that David is talking about? You're reminded of this somewhere else in the Psalms. In Psalm 3, one psalm back, David said there, I cried unto the Lord with my voice, and he heard me out of his holy hill. See, it's when I find in my life, just like David, when we find ourselves in deep water, it's during those times that we actually feel the greatest need of God to bail us out, for God to save us. David wanted a personal salvation, and he says, hear me, God, when I call. Uh, you know, look, it's great that other people can pray, but David says, look, I have a personal need in my life. Uh, that's one thing that, that makes it different between, between a true Bible-believing Christian and somebody that doesn't know Christ as their Savior because when you and I got saved, He became our personal Savior. And when we pray to Him, He hears our cry. David says, have mercy upon me. He says, and hear my prayer. For David, it was a personal salvation. Folks, listen, I hope that every day of your life that you think about how personal God is 
to you and how God wants you to know him uh, the way that he desires. And so David talks about a personal salvation, but notice in verse 2, he mentions a practical salvation. Not only was it personal to him, but look at verse 2. He says, O ye sons of men, how long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will ye love vanity and seek after leasing Selah? Now, David here, he wanted his salvation, this deliverance. David had been up against it with Absalom and all those that were looking for him to destroy his life. David wanted his salvation to be so thorough and so beyond question that it would actually shut the mouths of all of his enemies. I mean, it would be something that would be so miraculous, so supernatural that everybody would have to say, wow, there was something that was greater than David that was there that was helping him during this time. I'm reminded of that. One of the men that I've always enjoyed reading about is the man by the name of George Mueller. Is the name familiar with anybody else? George Mueller was a tremendous man that helped many orphans in England, but what most people don't know is the early struggles in life that Mueller had. Uh, Mueller uh, struggled as a young boy. He was rebellious. Mueller was uh, an alcoholic. He struggled uh, with alcohol. He was never very serious about his life. Most people knew him, and, and they, they kind of didn't want anything to do with him. But uh, there came a day in Mueller's life when Mueller trusted Christ as his Savior. God began to work in his life, and he knew that no one would take him seriously because they knew about his past. And I can, I can, uh, I'm familiar with that in my own life because of the life that I, I lived before I got saved. People always want to remember your past and all the bad things about your life and not see God working in your life after you get saved. And so Mueller thought, now, God, I, I, I you know, he's thinking about like David's thinking that that, God, I want something so, uh, so amazing to happen in my life that it would just shut the mouths of people that thought that uh, I can't do anything for God and that you can't do anything through me. And so the, the story goes that Mueller was determined to establish orphan houses in England. And so he wanted to do it in a way that would actually silence some of the atheist voices in England. So here's what he did. Mueller actually kept his financial needs a secret. The only people that knew his financial needs was him and God. He kept it away from everyone else. And amazingly, we know, as you've read and heard about Mueller, he succeeded with these, these orphanages for these children and the many lives that he helped. And they said that when Mueller died, that Bristol, England went into mourning. It says that the businesses in Bristol closed down when he died. People lined the streets to witness the passing of the body of a man who was one of the greatest men that that city had ever known. The Bristol Times newspaper said this, Mr. Mueller was raised up to show us that the age of miracles was not past, was not past. There was a professor who was one of Bristol's greatest surgeons at the time. His name was Randall Short, 
And here's what he said. He said, my father used to say that during the days of George Mueller, agnosticism didn't dare raise its head in Bristol. You know, Mueller was like David. David wanted something that was a practical salvation that would shut the mouths of his enemy because of, of the great salvation of God. And I can tell you this day that I know it to be true that that is the kind of salvation that God is still offering in this world today. God is still offering a salvation that makes drunken men sober. He's still offering a salvation that makes crooked men straight. God can straighten up a life when no one else in this world can straighten that life out. And so David, as he is there in, the, in this time in his life and everybody's against him, David begins to think about and he begins to talk about salvation. Well, if you're saved tonight, you understand that after salvation comes the next step. And that's what David begins to talk about in verse 3. Notice he talks of sanctification. See, sanctification follows salvation. Sanctification is the practical outworking of what salvation has already done in our hearts. Look at there in your notes, 2 Timothy 2.19. The Bible says, Nevertheless, the foundation of God standeth sure, having this seal, the Lord knoweth them that are his, and let every one that nameth the name of Christ depart from what? From iniquity. See, we find here that Paul's writing to Timothy, just like David is talking about sanctification. Look, God has saved me out of that life of sin. Now, here's what we need to understand is he saved us and he wants us to have a personal godliness, a personal godliness. Look at verse number three. David writes, but know that the Lord, here it is, hath set apart him that is godly for himself. The Lord will hear when I call unto him. If you're saved tonight, understand that God has saved you by his grace, but he has set you apart for himself. And David is, is writing here talking about this matter of sanctification. Sanctification is separation from ungodliness, but it's also a separation to God. It's from the world and unto God. See, God is the one. We can't make ourselves godly. God is the one that makes us godly. And once he has done that, then he, God, sets us apart. And here's the best part, for himself. God sets us apart for himself. As somebody said, being set apart for God makes us love the things that once we loathed and makes us loathe the things that we once loved. Isn't it interesting? The Bible says that all things are become what? New. Old things are passed away. All things are become new. D.L. Moody said, when Jesus Christ has the preeminence in your life, you will understand it all. He didn't come down here to tell us we couldn't go here or there and to lay down a lot of rules. He came to give us new life. Once you love him, you will delight in pleasing him. If you love the Lord tonight, listen, your life should be like Jesus's. Jesus said, I only do that which pleases my father. 
And that's the life that we need to live. Why? Because the Bible says in Colossians 1.8 that he's the head of the body. We're a part of the body of Christ, folks, and he's the head of the body. And notice he is a new creature, the Bible talks about, who is in the beginning the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he, Jesus, might have the preeminence. Jesus needs to be first place in our life. Uh, we need to allow this matter of sanctification uh, to be something that is God working in us and God working through us. It's a personal godliness. As a Christian, we ought to want to do those things that only please the Lord. Notice again the verse I just said in 2 Corinthians 5, 17, if any man be in Christ. If we're saved, notice he's a new creature. Old things passed away. Behold, all things are become new. The Lord, David says, set me apart for himself. And the Lord sets those that are godly, those that have been saved by the grace of God. And the best part is, look here, God changes us from the inside. He's doing a work in all of us. And we need to understand this matter of sanctification. It's in every area of our lives. God wants you and me to have a personal godliness. But then he also talks about in verse 4 that there is a personal goodness. Look at, look at what the verse says. Stand in awe and sin not. Commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still, Selah. See, David saw that sanctification, God setting him apart for himself, that sanctification brought about some new things in his life. One of those things that David realized was that it brought a new quality of life. The things I used to do, I don't do them anymore. The places I used to go, I don't go there anymore. It, it, there's a new quality in life. And folks, look, I'm going to tell you, I got saved when, I'm 20, uh, when I was 20, and I don't miss one thing I did or was involved with before I got saved. Folks, you know, I'm not e interested in going back to Egypt's land. I never liked leeks and, and onions and garlic anyway. You know, God has too many wonderful things for us. And David says, look, through this process of sanctification, God has given me a better quality of life. Psalm 33, 8, let all the earth fear the Lord. He says, and let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. This word here, awe, it's mentioned in Psalm 4. We just read it in Psalm 33 and verse number 8. Do you know that this is the missing element in many lives today, is that there is no awe of God. There's no respect of God. I, I think what we need in our lives, like Moses received when he was alive, when he went up on the mount, maybe when he spent time in the door, that he, he caught a fresh vision of the holiness of God, the purity of God. God said to us in his word, I am holy, therefore be ye holy. If you are my people, and I have saved you from your sins, and I have set you apart, I have set you unto myself, I want you to have a good life, to have a better quality of life. David was able to see this, and, and David, when he, when he saw this, he, he began to think about this. 
He, he saw that this sanctification not only brought a, a better quality of life, but it also br uh, brought a new quietness to his life. I mean, it seems like before we get saved that there's so much turmoil. But when the Lord moves in, everything changes. I still remember what it was like when I got saved. You know, I didn't hear, I didn't see lights flashing. I didn't hear bells going off. But I'm going to tell you something. There was a peace and a calm that came into my life. And for the most part, it's always been there since I've been saved. The only time that, 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 that the uh, other things are trying to drown it out is because of things going on in my life and maybe things I allow in my life from time to time. But David saw this quietness and in this matter of, of being still, look at, look at verse 4 again. He says, Stand in awe and sin not, commune with your own heart upon your bed and be still. That's a hard thing for people to do. I mean, I have a hard time just standing still. You know, little kids, they can't stand still at all. You know, and, and all of us, I think, struggle with it. The word still here actually can be translated silent. It's not just physically not moving. It's just being quiet. Sometimes when we pray, and I think we should pray, the Bible instructs us to pray and pray without ceasing, but a lot of times we think our prayer life should just be, God, I need this, I need this, I need this, I need this. And many times what we need to do is just be still. You know, like somebody told me a long time ago, just shut up. Let God talk. Listen to that still, small voice. Look at the Bible, says in Psalm 46.10, Be still, be quiet, and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. People say to me just about every week, they, they hear the news about this and they see this and this person and the, 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 the drama about the Supreme Court justice and all this stuff going on. And I tell people all the time, look, God's still on the throne. You just need to be still. Just be quiet. Look what God says. He says, I will be exalted among the heathen. I will be exalted in the earth. Folks, when we think about this, God wants us to be quiet so that we can hear what he has to say. See, something about the human body that when this is open, these are closed. You ever notice that? When we're talking, we're not listening. But when this closes, these open. God says, you just need to be quiet. David says, listen. When I think about God not only saved me, but he says God has set me apart. God wants me to be a godly man. And he wants me to enjoy the goodness of my new life in Christ. See, he talks about salvation. He talks about uh, sanctification. Look at the third one. He talks of sacrifice. Look at verse number five in Psalm, Psalm 4. Offer the sacrifices, notice it's plural. Everybody see that? The sacrifices of what? Righteousness. And put your trust in the Lord. Now, you look at this, and 
you can't offer, listen, you can't offer the sacrifices of righteousness if you're in a state of rebellion against God. I mean, they don't go hand in hand. Just like the other night when we had the Lord's table, you can't take the cup of the Lord and the cup of devils. You can't offer the sacrifices of righteousness unto the Lord if you're in a state of rebellion against God. As David is writing this, he has in mind there are sacrifices that the Bible mentions. I won't go into deep detail tonight. There, it, it would take some time, but I believe that David has in mind here the sweet savor sacrifices. These were the kind of sacrifices in the Old Testament that were offered by the righteous saint. Uh, there were three such offerings. Notice the first one is the burnt offering. The burnt offering. I love that as you study these, and, and there's so much uh, truth symbolism here. Uh, there's so much. Boy, if you want to have a, a good time studying something, you ought to study these offerings that I'm about to cover here. But this first one, the burnt offering, it's a picture of Christ's passion. It's a picture of Christ's passion. Uh, they would offer those sacrifices, those animals, and the smoke that would ascend up from those, uh, those sacrifices, it would ascend up to God and it would be accepted by the Lord as an act of worship. And that's the same thing that Lord Jesus Christ did was he offered himself up as a sweet savor to God, God Almighty. Look what the Bible says in Philippians 2, being found in fashion as a man. He humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Jesus offered himself as that burnt offering. He became, the Bible mentions, our propitiation. The word means satisfaction, that God accepted. Look, no, no lamb, no goat, no bull would ever satisfy the holy and just demands of an almighty God. But the Lamb of God was slain from the foundation of the world. See, that burnt offering is one of those offerings, those sacrifices that David was referring to. The second one is the meal offering. And the meal offering is not a picture of Christ's passion. It's a picture of Christ's perfection. Now, the meal offering consisted of flour. And what they would do with this flour is they would take it in the Old Testament and they would they would grind this flour and they'd grind it and grind it until it became a very fine powder. In other words, it was, it had, the texture of it was smooth. It was flawless. And it's a picture of the life of Christ. That the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says, who did no sin, neither was there guile found in his life, in his mouth. When you look at the life of Christ and you study the Word of God, I'll tell you this, no matter which story you look at, no matter from which angle you look at it, no matter what Jesus was involved in or who he was dealing with, in every situation you can find no flaws in his life. Not one time Jesus never had a wrong thought, he never had a bad attitude, the Bible says, in him was no sin. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin. Why? That we might be the righteousness of God in him. See, the life of Christ displayed nothing but perfection. Jesus, listen, 
Jesus in his life was impeccable. And we find the offering of a burnt offering pictures his passion. The meal offering is a picture of his perfection. But notice the third one is the peace offering. The peace offering is a picture of Christ's presence. See, this offering was actually the offering that brought the worshiper together with God. This was the one that brought them together. It was the basis for God and the worshiper to join together in a meal. Uh, Look at Ephesians chapter 2. The Bible says, But now, in Christ Jesus, ye who sometimes were far off are made nigh by the blood of Christ, for he is our what? He's our peace. Notice, who hath made both one and hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us. Look, man could never get up to God. But you know what Jesus did? He reconciled God and man back together again. You see that taking place in that peace offering. So David, as he writes and he begins to talk about salvation and he talks about sanctification, the third thing he talked about was these sacrifices of righteousness. These sacrifices teach us that we need to live a crucified life that we need to live a life that is a corresponding life, allowing the Lord to work in our life through this process of sanctification. But watch this, that there needs to be a communing life, that we are spending time with Him, that, that we understand that our life is in Christ. Well, see, that's three of the things that David talked about. But there's a fourth one. Notice the fourth thing that David talks about is he makes talk of song. Talk of song. Look in verse number six, the Bible says, There be many that say, Who will show us any good? Lord, lift thou up the light of thy countenance upon us. You see, David is saying here, look, as a child of God, as a believer in Christ, and by the way, I agree with this, I think every Christian should be a happy person. I just think we ought to have a smile on our face because we have the joy of the Lord in our lives. Folks, look, you might, and I've talked to many people, hey, why don't you join the choir? And people look at me, they start going, Pastor, you don't want me in the choir. I can't carry a tune in a bucket, you know? And, and a lot of times they're like, I, I just, I, I can't say. Folks, look, there's a lot of times where I, I'll get into my car on the way to, to up here yesterday. It was about 6.15 in the morning, and, and God just put a song in, in my heart on the way up here. And man, I was singing it. I was on key. I was, I, honestly, I was good. And uh, to myself, that's all, that's all, you know. And I thought if anybody else was here, they'd be saying, Pastor, please stop singing. But uh, I was enjoying it because God put that, that song, that's what God does. He picks us up out of the miry clay. He sets our feet upon a rock. He establishes our going. He puts a new song and look, I never grew up, some of you had the privilege of growing up in a Christian home and learning some of those songs that we think they're children's songs, like the B-I-B-L-E. Hey, that song will do you a lot of good, just singing a song like that. David's talking about, in spite of the adversity in his life, look here, he had a song in his heart. And I want you to see that, look, those people that were with David, we see her letter A, the tragedy of of what I would call a joyless life. These are people that 
they're not enjoying it. They were like the people in David's camp that, that were gloomy about their lives, and they wanted to see something rather than to believe it. There was no faith there, but David was able in his life, look, don't let somebody else rain on your parade, you know? If somebody's having a bad day, then listen, let them go on and have their bad day. Just enjoy the Christian life. Be happy about what God has done in your life. And David, look, even with tears running down his face, David still could sing a song in his heart. Look at the Bible says, Job said this, None saith, Where is God my maker, who giveth songs in the night? I mean, I think we all know the testimony of Job's life. If Job can say that, then listen, I think all of us can find a way to rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say rejoice. See, David says, look, there are some that have no joy in their life. But notice letter B, he talks about the triumph of a joyful life. A joyful life. Look at verse number seven. Thou hast put gladness in my heart more than in the time that their corn and their wine increase. Now, it's interesting here because David contrasts between verse 6 and verse 7. He talks about those that have no joy and those that are gloomy and, and they don't have a song in their heart. And David here, you know, he mentions in verse 7, he says, more than in the time that their corn and their wine increase. Now, what's he talking about here? Well, if you study it out, David was thinking about that annual harvest festival that the Jews always partook of called the Feast of Tabernacles. It was a time where it was a happy time, the blessings of God in their lives. One verse that reminds me of that is Proverbs 3.10, so shall thy barns be filled with plenty and thy presses shall burst out with new wine. David's thinking about, listen, I, I just think about how many good things God has done for me. He says, look, I realize things has, haven't been well as of late, but God has blessed me. And even through the loss that David had, he was no longer in the palace. He was no longer enjoying those things that he had. But David's spirit in this psalm, it soared. Why? How could David be that way and have a song in his heart? Look, he might have had all these things taken away from him, but you know the one thing that was never taken from David? His God. David still had the Lord. And folks, I'm going to tell you, this world could never take the Lord and the joy of the Lord from us. Uh, David's joy was in God. It wasn't in goods. And so David, David is thinking about how the things of this world, the goods of this world, they come and go. But David, in, in, even though he was uh, there and, and he was struggling for a little bit, David had the Lord and that's all he needed. Look what the Bible says that Philip said unto the Lord in John 14, 8. He says, show us the Father and it sufficeth us. You know what that means? That means that Christ is all I need. He says, if I've got God, I don't need anything else. And, and listen, in our lives, may God help us to understand if we're saved and God is sanctifying us and we are offering those sacrifices to the Lord, there ought to be a song in our hearts. And notice the last thing, and this is how David signs off in this psalm, he talks of security. Look at verse number eight. The Bible says, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep, for thou, Lord, only makest me to dwell in safety. See, with Absalom against him, Absalom's gathered all these other people with him against his own daddy. What did David do? Isn't it interesting what he did? Did you see it in verse eight? 
Anybody know what David did? He went to sleep. I mean, I, I talk to people all the time, and, and I'll say to them, that, you know, did you get a good night's rest? Nope. Laid awake worrying all night. I mean, folks, I, I don't think many of us face what David faced in his life with Absalom rebelling against him and all these people uh, out looking for him. And David says, listen, I, I understand that, but he says, I'm just going to, I think it's just a good time to lay me down and sleep. He says in, in Psalm 3 and verse 5, he says, I awake for the Lord sustained me. You know what that means? He enjoyed personal peace. He says, I will both lay me down in peace and sleep. He enjoyed perfect peace because he says, for thou, Lord, only. I mean, this was before Serta was ever around. No mattresses, you know? He didn't have temperature control. He didn't have all the luxuries of life that we had. I mean, he probably made some rock his pillow, folks. And, and we, we have all the modern conveniences of life. But you know what he had that night? He had the Lord. And God gave him security. David was secure in the, in the arms of God. No arrow could touch him as long as he was with the Lord. And look, the, more he, the truth was, David was more secure with God where he was than before he had fled from the palace and he had guards roaming around keeping him safe. David was more secure with God out away from the palace. You think about that. No matter where you are, Sometimes it will be in a storm, but if you're in the middle of God's will, you're in the safest place you can be. David found a security. See, in spite of the adversity in his life, David talked of five things. He talked of salvation. Do you, do you ever share your testimony with somebody? When's the last time you thanked the Lord for your salvation? David talked of salvation. He talked about sanctification. God wants me to live a holy life. He talked about sacrifices. It was all about the Lord. It was all about what Jesus had done for him. David talked about, listen, I ought to have joy in my life. Even though I've had all this adversity, I still should have a song in my heart. And then he said this. He says, listen, I've had a lot going on in my life, but I've never felt more secure because God is with me. He is ever present with me. We have a lot to be thankful for, don't we? Can I tell you tonight, in every day of your life as a Christian, let your talk talk. That's what we need to do. Lord, thank you for this evening. Thank you for this wonderful psalm. And Lord, I pray that you'd help us. I look around the auditorium tonight, and I know of some of the trials and struggles. Lord, we all have things to face. We don't know what tomorrow holds. Certainly, David understood what it was like to have adversity. And we have endured many things in our lives, too, but we are so thankful that we have you. Thank you for all you do for us. Thank you for the security that we have. Lord, most of all, thank you for the salvation that you have freely supplied for us through your son, Jesus. For it's in his name we pray. Amen.